Mr. Peebles is coming, and uh, if you're visiting us tonight, we sure would like you to have one of these packets of material, tell you a little bit about our ministry here. So just raise your hand if you're visiting, would you please? And I think you'll find this interesting, perhaps of some help in some way in these days ahead. Let me just make mention of the fact that I got just today a letter from Missy and Warren, just a brief note. Uh, thanking us for sending them a copy of uh, our book. And uh, in the process, uh, Warren just put a note down at the bottom, said, uh, tell everybody, praise the Lord, the airplane pilot that lives in their neighborhood that they've been trying to reach for Christ, accepted Christ last night. So uh, we've got reason to rejoice in that uh, with our missionaries to the San Fernando Valley. We praise the Lord for what he's doing. Now, we come to another one of the turning points in our study tonight. Uh, We have, uh, previous to missionary conference for three weeks, introduced the fact that we're going to be talking about the the very practical aspect of the the matter of taking uh, follow-up appointments with individuals that have accepted Christ as Savior, and uh, in a very real sense, taking them through um, in ten sessions the basics that they need to know in order to have growth in their Christian life. Now, we've said a number of things about the importance of this and the importance of uh, the overall general uh, approach and all of those things. And um, we now, for the next ten weeks, with uh, just a couple of interruptions along the way, uh, want to cover these ten appointments. Now, we've given you full notes. Um, And uh, as we said before, in this particular section of this series, incidentally for any of you that are new, um, there are notes available in all three phases of this study, discipleship in the uh, Gospels, discipleship in the book of Acts, and now in this practical uh, application of this ministry. But um, we give you these uh, these full notes because we'll only have time to spend just this hour, on what may take a couple of hours in a discipleship session, with the answering of questions and the looking up and reading of all of the scripture references, all of the things necessary to really ground this person in the faith. And so you've got the notes, and if we don't get to every verse, if we don't get to everything that we have on the notes, at least we'll have the basics uh, before you in note form, and we'll cover as much of this as we can. Now, we're assuming a number of things, and there will be variations. Please don't just take these notes and try to use them verbatim. You've got to realize we're not trying to crank out ticky-tacky. We're not cranking out uh, an assembly line, disciples of the Lord. Every person is an individual, and everyone needs individual care. Everyone needs individual concern. And so, therefore, you're not going to be able to just sit down and lay this stuff on him. You have to use a little creativity. Use your imagination. Use scripture verses that uh, will be especially appropriate and especially near and dear to you so that you can couple them with your personal testimony. We're giving you here an outline, a basic idea. If you change it totally and do it another way, you'll probably do a better job anyway. So don't worry about that aspect of it. Just realize that it's vital that you have some kind of a plan and you know where you're going so that you're able to cover at least some of the basic things. And one of the things we're assuming, just for the moment, is that we're, not, we're talking about an individual who has recently accepted Christ as his Savior. 
And uh, I'm assuming that you didn't lead him to the Lord. Now, you may have led him to the Lord, and if so, then you're going to use a little different words, probably. But uh, this first session would be a time where you really need to get acquainted with where he is spiritually. And so we've tried to give you some help. We've suggested that you begin saying something like this, since you've recently accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. I want to be involved in helping you become a disciple of Jesus Christ and become and to grow in your Christian life. I want to help you understand your decision that you've made for Christ. And so I've prepared material for 10 appointments. And I'd like for the next 10 weeks, or if you want to meet every other week, uh, for the next 20 weeks, meeting every other week, I want to meet with you and uh, spend a couple of hours with you going over some of these things that will ground you in the faith. Now again, ad lib, use your own words. Don't try to copy me. I don't even copy me if you're following your notes there. You notice that? Just simply explain to him that you're here to help him and to answer his questions, to be his friend, and to see if he can't make, you can't make him a person who takes delight in growing as a Christian and in learning more about Jesus Christ. And so then, state your purpose in regard to what you're going to do in the first session. Say to him, look, first thing we want to talk about and make sure of, as far as your life is concerned, is that you have real assurance of your salvation, that you understand what this decision is and what it means to you. And so then tell him you want to cover three areas. And these three areas we've delineated in the little diagram, I think diagram eight, if I'm not mistaken, that you find in your notes. Just simply three areas that you want to cover. God's promises to you, God's promises to the believer, some things that God wants you to know. These are some basic things. You may want to add, you may want to change them, but these are some basic things we want to touch on. And thirdly, the things that you can expect as a new Christian, the things that, uh, that you should have as a part of your, your relationship with Christ. But then, say, before we, before we talk about those things, though, let me ask you a few questions. And there are several questions that will really give you the clue as to how you should approach the rest of the session together. First of all, you want to ask him the question, what were the circumstances that led up to your becoming a Christian? Now, don't ask him, don't say to him, when did you become a Christian? Because he probably will just say, June 5th, 1977, or whatever. He'll give you a date, because that's what you asked for. Far better to say, what were the circumstances that led to your becoming a Christian. Why? Because then he's forced to give you a little bit of the background in the setting. Well, I was really depressed this one day, and this friend came to me. He was so happy, and I just asked him, you know, uh, why he was so happy, and he laid it on me, you know. Uh, whatever. There, there are all kinds of ways that, that, that this could be done. I was tempted tonight. Maybe I still should do it, but I guess I won't because uh, of the time more than anything else. But I was just tempted to really have one of you just come up here, and I just talk to you this way. What were the circumstances that led up to your becoming a Christian? Now, it's right at this point that you can pick up on what he understands concerning salvation. And uh, it also could be a time, if you don't know the fellow well, it could be a good time for you to say, uh, say even beforehand, let me share with you what the circumstances were that led up to my being a Christian, especially if he's hesitant. Then you go ahead and share your testimony. Do you have a testimony? Could you answer that question? Did you tell the individual what the circumstances were that led up being Christian? Now, I have a peculiar situation in that I accepted Christ at five years of age. And uh, 
So as a result, uh, when you say somebody who's an adult and has just accepted Christ, um, you accepted Christ at five years of age, immediately have a generation gap. And uh, they think, good night, what could a guy possibly do to help me who was so naive as a child to make this decision? And so I immediately add that I kind of rested on the fact that I'd accepted Christ at five years of age. And then, when I was a freshman in high school, I began to have some serious doubts. And I began to really wrestle with whether Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be. And I began to study the Gospel of John. And as I studied the Gospel of John, I came face to face with the real Jesus Christ. And as a result, I reaffirmed my decision that I'd made many years before and uh, made sure that I was in the family of God. Now, that gives you an idea of how you can improvise and kind of help the fellow along. But what you want to do is invoke from him some kind of a testimony. Don't expect him to give you a theological discourse. Remember, he's only been a Christian a short time. He may only know how to say dada, but that's the beginning. He may just give you a very superficial account of what happened to him. He may not really understand it, but don't worry about it because that will help you help him. Then the second question that you might want to present to him is, how do you know that Christ saved you? Now, this is a trap, admittedly. Because most people who are new believers will say, I just felt so clean. It's most usually very subjective. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a matter of uh, the individual just kind of expressing the, uh, the feeling that came over him. And uh, usually there is feeling that does accompany a decision for Jesus Christ. A feeling of elation or a feeling of relief or a loss of guilt. And they don't know how to explain that exactly. And so what you do with them is you simply force them to give you those things and then you know where they are. Because later on you're going to, in this particular session, you're going to explain to them the importance of not resting their decision upon subjective feelings, but rather on the objective truth of the Word of God. So you see, this gives you something you can refer to, and you can refer to it with compliments. You can go back, when you come to that, you can say, now a few moments ago I asked you how you knew that Christ had saved you, and you said you felt good. Well, now, yeah, that's really great. And that's true of most people, you could say, that uh, they do have some kind of a feeling. But remember, feelings come and feelings go. And uh, you, you can't depend upon your feelings. And if you count on those feelings, what happens tomorrow morning? If you get up out of bed and you don't feel like a Christian anymore, does that mean you aren't one? Because what you want to do is get them to rest their faith in the eternal truth, the objective truth of the Word of God. So don't rebuke them if they say, well, I felt good. That's not the time to jump in. Right now, you're just kind of breaking the ice with them. So you ask them those two questions. Then you turn to the third question. What changes have taken place since Christ came into your life? Now again, don't expect them to have all the answers. One old Indian one time accepted Christ as his Savior. And after he accepted Christ as his Savior, he came back to the missionary a few days later. And here's how he explained the change that had taken place in his life. He said to the missionary, before I was a Christian, he said, I had a black dog inside of me. He says, now I have a white dog and a black dog. And he says, the, the, the two dogs are always fighting. The missionary immediately recognized that he had his theology pretty straight because he understood he now had two natures. So then, 
the missionary said, ah, which one wins? And here's where the Indian's theology really shone. Because he said, ah, that depends on which one I say sikkim to. You see, now that's the clue. That's the key. Now, what is that? Well, now, you know, you, you, you can talk about the old nature and the new nature, and God never does talk about dogs. And you could say, now that's really shallow theology. But wait a minute. That is what he recognized as a change in his life. Before, he was under the domination of an old sin nature. But God gave him a new nature which infects all of his life. And the result is, now he is offered a choice between the old and the new. And he understood that if he chose wrong, isn't this what Romans 6 says? It says, you are a slave to whom you choose to obey. Where of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. It's exactly it. So don't chasten the old Indian. But you learn from that illustration how naive and yet how, how beautifully these new Christians can express what has taken place in their life. What they see as a change will generally be something very superficial. It won't be anything that they can understand the deep theology of putting off the old man, putting on the new, and all of that. But rather they'll just say, well, you know, somehow I just, I just am at peace. Somehow or another, I, I don't seem to worry as much anymore. Well, you're a Christian. You know good and well worry's going to come back. And so therefore, you, you realize that there's more to dealing with worry than just that momentary matter. But here's a person who has had an experience with God. Get out of them what they see the difference is, because that'll help you in developing their Christian life. I would just keep a little notebook on this person and write down the things they said. Because as you go through and you begin to explain the two natures in the example, you'll want to refer to this. Remember when, when you came to me and said you had a white dog and a black dog uh, inside of you? Here is what the scripture says about this subject. The flesh warreth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other. And so on. This is the thing that you can do. All right, now that really breaks the ice. Now, I want to say this. Star it in your uh, frame of reference here. But you want from the very beginning to instill a confidence in God's word, not a confidence in you. Now, they may be awed by your vast knowledge of the word of God because you know John 3.16 and a couple of other verses. And they're just going to be amazed at how much you know. But don't let that go to your head. And just start quoting those verses off the top of your head to show your, your great show of knowledge. Use the Bible. If you have to fumble, fumble. If you have to look it up in a concordance, admit you don't know where that verse is. Be honest with them. But let them know that a part of the life of the Christian is to get to know this book. And use it. Point out verses. Have them find them in their own Bible. Have them underline promises. Have them claim the promises. Stop in the middle of the thing. Bow for a word of prayer and claim a promise together that God gives to you. Don't be ashamed to be very natural about your relationship with Jesus Christ. All right? Now we get to our little outline. God's promises to the believer. Don't snow him. There are over 7,000 promises given to the believer for time. There are hundreds of promises that are given to the believer in regard to uh, eternal life. There are at least 36 things that God does the instant of salvation. All of those have to do 
with positional truth and have to do with, with what's been accomplished for us. All of that is promises as well, but there are over 7,000 promises right now for time. Okay? And what are you going to do with them? You can give them all 7,000 the first session? Be careful. Don't give him more than he can chew. Pick some very key things. I've picked three. Eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, and sonship. Those are three very basic things. Actually, I'd like to turn them around. Eternal life, sonship, and finally, forgiveness. These are three very basic things that are involved in the Christian life. And I, I wouldn't be a bit afraid to tell him that there are over 7,000 promises that are given to the believer. And I wouldn't even be afraid to tell him that, that there are 36 things that God did the instant of salvation. But I would tell him, I'm not going to share all those things with you now. That's a part of the progress of learning in the Christian life. And before long, you're going to find that you're going to understand and know a lot of these 36 things that took place in your life. But don't try to snow him by naming them off. You probably could do that. Justification and sanctification and uh, forgiveness and adoption and predestination. And, you know, you start naming all the things that God gave, you know, and it's just going to snow him. He's not going to be able to understand or grasp what you're trying to say. And so, explain eternal life. I have a little way that I like to explain eternal life that I use with children. And I think it's a great way to explain eternal life to someone who has no concept because we're so locked into time. Uh, the story goes that a little girl asked her mother one time what eternal life was. And her mother said, well, that's forever. And the little girl said, but how long is that? And the mother said, well, I'll tell you. If a little bird came to the tallest mountain on earth and took one grain of sand from that mountain each year, when the mountain was removed, then eternity would just be beginning. Now, that may sound dumb, but remember this, that eternity is forever, and it's difficult for the human mind to grasp that. We can grasp the more concrete terms, especially children can, where they understand that grain of sand, one a year. Wow, that'd take a long time to move that mountain, wouldn't it? And eternity then is just beginning. But all of a sudden it puts them in a context of just how long that is compared to time. All right? But then stress with the person that this eternal life has to do with it being on some things that are unending. Unending fellowship with God. Unending life with God. Unending fulfillment forever. These are things that relate to eternal life. Turn him, and I won't turn to all these passages simply because of the time factor here, but I again stress, turn with these people. But turn, for instance, to 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13 which says, and this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life. Now you can go back on that and you can say, what does it say? This is the record. That's God putting his stamp upon it. This is the record that God hath given to us. Who's he talking about there? Believers. Are you a believer? Yes. What has he given? Eternal life. How long is eternal life? It's forever. All right? He has given 
us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. How do you get eternal life? Faith in Jesus Christ. Right? He that hath the Son hath life. What kind of life? Eternal life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. What kind of life? He doesn't have eternal life. And the wrath of God abideth on him. And then it goes on and says, These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life. Why did John write his first epistle? So that they would know that they had eternal life, and this life is in his Son. You see, 1 John is an excellent passage of Scripture to use in dealing with a new believer. And I suggest that the Gospel of John and 1 John are the best books for them to start reading. Read the Gospel of John in the morning. Read the book of 1 John in the evening. Read about 10 verses a day. And they'll cover that material in a hurry, even though it only takes a few moments. And they'll get a real grasp of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done and what is expected of the Christian because 1 John deals a great deal about that. All right? So stress the matter that eternal life in these passages is not something that happens after we die, but is a present possession. It's ours now. He gave his son that we might have right now eternal life. What do you have? You have eternal life. What can change that? Nothing. It's as simple as that. You cannot change the eternal nature of eternal life. It is your possession. John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's just a synonym for eternal life. Everlasting. It means it lasts forever. Then, of course, you have John 3.36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. All right? Now, that has to do with eternal life. I would spend a good amount of time discussing the importance of eternal life. And explaining perhaps the contrast between eternal life and what the Bible calls eternal death. The fact that really the difference between eternal life and eternal death is separation from God or fellowship with God. Separation from God is death simply because life is inherent in God. God's the giver of life. And as a result, persons who do not have a relationship with God are called children of the darkness, called uh, those that are walking in death, and also called, uh, in the book of Ephesians, without God and without hope in this world. Explain the difference between eternal life and eternal death. Then go to the matter of sonship. Now, let me divert here just a moment. Remember Sunday morning, if you were here, we were talking about the matter of adoption, son-placing having to do with our position in Christ. Think of it in terms of two circles, if you will. Here is our position. And that is in Christ. First three, cha- first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Right? As to our position, we are called sons. Down here is our experience. Ephesians chapters 4 through 6. We have Christ in 
us. All right? And here we are a child of God. The son has full inheritance. The child has a growth procedure. Experientially, we have to grow. There are three words in the Greek that are used to describe the child. There, of course, is the word nephos, which spoke of the infant. There's the word brephos, which spoke of the child sucking at his mother's breast. And there finally is the word pedia, which has to do with the child under discipline. All right? Up here, we have the word huias, or the position of sonship. Now, you may not want to go into that detail with them, but I want you to understand it at least. Because what you have to do is tell them that down here, there is, there is the growth. Down here, there is the, the, the matter of, of being in fellowship with Christ and being out of fellowship and, and all of those things. There are the struggles of the Christian life, all of that. And that is a very nebulous thing. Down here in the experience, some days you'll feel like a Christian. Some days you won't. Some days you'll act like a Christian. Some days you won't. How many of you, all this last week since last Wednesday night, acted like a Christian every minute of the day? Good. See? That'll keep you humble, won't it? Just even think of that. We live in this experiential area. We do not live perfect lives here, but we have a perfect standing in Christ. Sonship is the vital thing. And they have to realize that there is a position that is secure even when we don't act like we should as far as our experience is concerned. I've always amazed, you know, in the book of Ephesians, which I've been just saturating myself with lately, you know, I can't get it out of my mind. You go for three chapters and over and over and over again, Paul is hammering home positional truth. And he's saying, look, here's what you are, here's what you are, here's what you are, here's what you are. And you get to the end of the thing and you say, man, this is, you know, this is swell. This is, these people must have been the greatest Christians in the world. Then you go to the fourth chapter and you know what it says? Present active imperative with a negative. Stop acting like the rest of the Gentiles. In the light of what you are, stop acting like them. You know how they were acting? It tells us. They were stealing. They were lying. They were cheating. They weren't forgiving one another. Good night. They were a mess. But you see, their position is one thing. Their practice is something else. And what God is doing in life is trying to get our practice more like our position. That's a simple thing. Now, mind you, when it comes to the matter of sonship, remember Galatians 3.26 especially. For ye are all... The trouble is that our King James Bibles especially have really just fouled this up. They ought to translate who he asked son. They ought to translate uh, these other words... Uh, uh, Pedia and so on as children then we'd be able to catch it by just reading it you've got to use your head look up the words be sharp All right, Galatians 3.26 for ye are all the sons of God not the children of God as the authorized version has ye are all the huios the sons of God by faith in Christ then of course you have also in Romans 8 verses 14 and 17 you have really a comparison between the two. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Then it says, down in verse 17, and since children, and that word since, by the way, I've got to pause here a moment. I've got to 
I'm going to get carried away and we're going to lose out here if I don't look out. But I've got to say this. In verse 17 of Romans 8, it says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now, mind you, the, the, the two ifs there are different. The first if is a first-class condition. Fulfilled. Since. Since ye are children, children of God, born into his family. This is speaking of birth bringing heirship, not sonship bringing heirship. But if, since you are children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If, there's the third class condition. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. It depends. But if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. There's a degree of glory that comes especially to those that suffer with Jesus Christ. And that's a conditional matter. But the first class condition is a fulfilled condition. Since ye are children of God. So that's a great verse of assurance as well. All right. Now... In John 1.12, we have these words. As many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Sorry, it's not huias. What it is, is the word for children. That we become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. You should be able, though, to pick out verses that use the concept of sonship. And talk to them about the fact that experientially you are born into the family of God. That gets you into the family. But in Christ, you are placed in a full position of sonship at the moment of salvation. And that will be fully realized when we get to glory. So again, sonship is a very important area that you want to stress. Then, because there is such a need for people to understand they've been forgiven... One of the things that you have with a new Christian is still the feeling of the regret and guilt over the past. They're filled with guilt. Remember, they've lived with guilt all of their life up to this time. And guilt is a good thing if it will bring them to Christ. But then after he becomes a Christian, Satan would like to use the weight of that guilt. Really, it's false guilt. Because guilt that has been erased by the blood of Christ no longer is genuine guilt. What it is, is a false guilt. It is emotional. It is a feeling. It is something that Satan plays on. Again, think in terms of the concept of forgiveness with two circles. Here's our position in Christ. Here's our experience. Christ in us. As to our position, we have judicial forgiveness. The slate has been wiped clean. Your sins will I remember no more. I've removed them from you as far as the east is from the west. Judicially, the sin question has been cared for once and for all. For this is my blood of the New Testament, Christ said as he stood in the upper room around that table. This is the blood of my New Testament, which is shed for many for the purpose of remission of sins. The word remission is the same word as the word forgiveness. Christ shed his blood so that we might be totally forgiven of our sin. Ephesians 1, 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. That's judicial forgiveness. 
Colossians 2.13 And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, having quickened together with, uh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. You've missed the mark. You'll all, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is judicial forgiveness. And that is forever. When you get to heaven, now get this, this is a theological fact. When you get to heaven, there will be absolutely no evidence you were ever a sinner. None whatsoever. It's all gone. Taken care of by the blood of the new covenant. The shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Listen, friends. There is no need to feel guilty over the sins of the past. The past is forgiven, as the song says. My sins are all gone. God is taking care of that at the cross. But experientially, there can continue to be sin. That's where 1 John 1, 7, and 9 come in. Now, it's a good time for you to explain this to this individual. That God not only forgave all the sins of the past, but he made provision for the sins of the present, the sins of the future. He made provision in his son. So that the positional forgiveness, the judicial forgiveness, assures that the relationship can never be broken. But fellowship can be broken. And so there has to be experiential forgiveness. 1 John 1.7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other one. It says one with another. Check it, verse 3. Look back at verse 3. And in verse 3 you'll see that we have fellowship with each other, and our fellowship is with, with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So there is a sense in which we have fellowship one with another. But the text there does not mean that. It's talking about singular fellowship. It's talking about one with another one. Therefore, it's talking about if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with Christ. Notice the if, third class condition. Maybe true, maybe not. It depends on you. If you walk in the light, it's true. You have fellowship with God. If you don't walk in the light, you don't have fellowship. That's the implication. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, continually cleanses us from all sin. As long as there is no willful, known sin in our life, we have the provision of continual cleansing. So no matter whether we inadvertently goof, find out about it later, we really don't have to worry about it. God is constantly cleansing as long as we walk in the light. 1 John 1, 9, though, says, well, 1 John 1, 8 says that if you say you have no sin, that's deception. You really can't claim that. You are going to sin. But if we confess our sin and clarify for him what confession is. Confession is not weeping. Confession is not feeling sorry for your sin. It's nice to feel sorry for your sin, but that's not what confession is. Confession is homo logeo. Homo the same. Logeo to speak. To speak the same. To agree in other words. You call it sin. And when you agree with God, call it sin. 
then he will what? Forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The slate is clean again. And as far as God is concerned, there is no evidence that you ever blew it as far as heaven is concerned. The only scar we have left over is the time we wasted while we weren't walking in the light. That we can never retrieve. But you see, as far as the sin itself is concerned, it is wiped clean. Oh, if Christians would only be as free to forgive one another as God is to forgive us. We're supposed to. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. We just don't forgive that way. God would like us to. Okay, that's another subject. How did I get on that? All right, now you understand this. Give them as much as you think they can take in order to understand God's concept of forgiveness. Now, tell them there's much more. That they'll be learning along and along in their Christian life. But these are three essential areas. And you might want to share with them about some of the other things just briefly that God has done. But there are some things that God wants this individual to know. He wants them, for instance, to know that our faith rests upon fact, not upon feeling. Campus Crusade did us a real service a few years ago. When in their little book on how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, they drew a train. Beautiful, just beautiful concept. Because you see, what we're dealing with here is the fact of the Word of God. The coal car is faith. The faith that, that, that uh, in, in a sense, um, brings motivation in the area of the fact. And the feeling take up the caboose. Now, how many times have you seen the caboose pull the train? Most people try to get the feeling out here, and they operate on the basis of feeling. Feeling is the caboose. And really, if the caboose fell off, it wouldn't slow the train down at all. In fact, it might even speed it up. The caboose is not a necessary and essential part. The faith and the fact combined together are essential. You can't do without them. You have to have the Word of God and trust in the Word of God. That combination is great. But you see, feelings come and feelings go. And they, they, they one day you'll have them, one day you won't. And so therefore, don't operate on the basis of feelings. Don't get the feelings out here in the front. Because you can't run a railroad that way. No way to run a railroad. Faith, uh, fact, and I should say faith in fact, not in feelings. Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 says this, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus... How do you receive Christ Jesus? By faith. So walk ye in him. How do I walk? By faith. Then you can go to other passages that tell us we walk by faith and not by sight. And uh, the fact that we look not at the things that are seen, but the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporary. The things which are not seen are eternal. Passages like that, you can go on and on and on. Digging out passages that indicate to us that we base what we have not on the basis of feeling, but on the basis of faith in the fact of the Word of God. Now right here, you want to talk to him just briefly about the importance of knowing this book. Keep coming back to that. And say, later on I'm going to show you some methods of Bible study, ways that you can take a passage of Scripture and learn and gain something from it. 
I, I have to save that for another time, but you know, what is appetite a little bit? Right now, all I'm going to suggest to you is that you begin reading the Gospel of John and begin reading First John. Read the Gospel of John every morning. Read about ten verses. In the evening, then read about five or six verses from First John. And underline every promise you find. That'll be a good start. Later on, we'll come to the matter of how you can, how you can really put shoe leather on this. All right? So that's one thing that God wants you to know. Another thing that God wants you to know is that He has placed within you an inner witness. He has given His Spirit. 1 John 4.13 Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. The Spirit of God came to indwell your life. That in a very real sense, God lives inside of you. You can talk to Him a little bit if you want to, about His body being the temple of the Holy Spirit from 2 Corinthians 6. You might want to share with him a little bit about uh, the ministry of the Spirit of God, but you don't, you're going to come to some of that later. So it might suffice it to say that God, in the person of his Holy Spirit, actually lives within you. Romans 8, 15 and 16, For we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of sun-placing, adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The very fact that a few minutes ago you could give me a testimony of what happened when Christ came into your life is an indication that you've been able to express your faith. Abba, Father, that was the first cry of an infant. And we're able to cry, Father, in the sense that we, that we have been given a witness in our own spirit, the Spirit of God. For the next verse says, the Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And it's not something you can lay hold of many times. But there is that inner witness. And when you talked about feeling, you said you felt good. What you really felt was that you sensed a change had taken place. Because the Spirit of God came to live inside of you. And your body now is His temple. And He wants to express the glory of God through your life. I get so excited about this. You just can hardly stand it, you know. Wish you were all brand new believers. Wouldn't I have fun with you? All right. The third thing is, you became a new creation. Something took place. Something real. Something that God says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, are you in Christ? Uh, well, I don't know. Am I in Christ? What does that term mean? All right, be ready to answer him simply means that you and Christ are made one, like a man and a wife are made one in marriage. Like the head and the body are put together so that they function in coordination. So you are one with Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. Your union with Christ. Right? All right? Now, you are in Christ. If any man be in Christ, what happens? He is a new creature. The word means creation. He is a new creation. Now notice what it says. Because you are a new creation, because God has made you new. Therefore, old things have passed away, and all things have become new. You say, well, how can that be? If that is true, then that means that the instant I accepted Christ, I should be perfect, right? No, no. What it means is this. That whereas your life was totally tainted by sin, Previous to salvation, you are infected, if I could use that term, with sin in every phase of your life. Your thinking, 
your acting, your habits, everything you did was infected with sin. Now, everything has been infected with God's righteousness. Everything, every part of your being, it no longer is the same. You ever notice that, that, that passage that says uh, that if we walk in the Spirit, no, that's not the one I want. I lost it. It's over in Galatians. In any event, the concept of a change in life. Oh, yeah, uh, it, where it talks there about the fact that the flesh wars against the Spirit, the, uh, the Spirit against the flesh, so that you cannot do the things that you would. In other words, before you were a Christian, you could just sit back, you know, and be an unbeliever. And except for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, you could kind of cruise. And you even enjoyed your sin. How many were sinners and did not have some times of enjoyment in their sin? Sure, you always enjoyed something of your sin. You see? But when the Spirit of God came into your life, the struggle began. So that you can't just relax. You realize now that you have a clear option before you at all times. And there is a struggle within your life. So you just can't sit back. Because now... The, the Christian life has invaded your life. And ultimately, when you're with Christ, all of that old part of us is going to be completely gone, out of our system entirely. We're going to be fleshed out and made anew. But right now, as long as we're in this body, we'll have the struggle. But in our heart and life, there is a real, genuine change that has taken place in our thinking, in our feeling, in our acting, in our will, in our bodies, God has infected us with the very person of Jesus Christ. And more and more, that's going to infect our life as you grow as a Christian. Your life is tainted with righteousness, touched with the aroma, the fragrance of Jesus Christ. Now there's a genuine change then that has taken place in your life. So, you know, the guy comes to you one day and he says, yeah, you know, I got a problem. Why? He says, I used to, I have this habit. He says, I used to just love it. And I don't love it anymore. And I want to get rid of it. But I can't understand. Why one day do I love it and the next day I don't love it? What's happened? Uh, he's infected with a person of Jesus Christ. He just can't be satisfied with that anymore. I remember a man one time at, after he accepted Christ as Savior, he said, he said you know, he said, he said this, is, this is real. This is great. But he said, I'm inclined to think that my life has been pretty good up to this time. I don't think any great change is going to take place. Came back to me a few days later. You know, he says, I, I didn't realize. I, he said, I, I really have a filthy habit. And he named it. He said, I, I, I think that's, you know, that's just about the only unchristian thing that I do. I, to be frank with you, when I talked to you the other day, I hadn't thought of it. But he says, it's just been bugging me. So he gave this habit up. Came to me a few days later. He says, you know, he says, there's something else. He said, uh, he says, why didn't you tell me I had such a foul mouth? He said, I, he said, I, I never even thought of it. The other day I burst forth with a bunch of profanity. And uh, he said, I suddenly thought to myself, good night, I talk like that all the time. That's no way for a Christian to act. But why didn't you tell me I had such a filthy mouth? Well, give, give God time, he'll bring it to your attention. Well, he said, sure did. 
And then another thing, and then another, and then another. Guess what? He's a real born-again Christian. You know, that guy. <laughs> he found out just how bad he really was and what he really was as far as his life. But the instant he received Christ as Savior, he looked over his life and he couldn't see anything really so bad. The same man, you know, really enjoyed a particular form of pleasure. It's not, it's not anything that you would scream too high at. You know, maybe most of you wouldn't. Maybe some of you would if you're pretty legalistic. It's really not all that bad, all right? I mean, as if you're going to put categories and degrees of sin, and it's not really a matter of whether it's bad, it's a matter of whether it's obedience to God. And in his case, God hit him like a ton of bricks. He went to this affair, and he just always enjoyed himself immensely, looked forward to it all the time. He went to that thing, good, what am I doing with this bunch? He couldn't enjoy it anymore. It's not like, you know, the, the story of, the story of uh, of the guy who uh, of the uh, the guy who bought the parrot. Did you ever hear that story? Of the guy that bought the parrot. Well, the the upshot of the thing was that after he had embarrassed he embarrassed his owner all the time by uh, by making remarks about the people in the the guy that had him it was owned a bar and he always made derogatory remarks about the the guy and the guys in the bar. So he sold it. He sold it to the preacher. And the preacher had it at the church one day. It flew up into the rafters. And uh, when, when uh, the preacher couldn't get him down, so he, he stood there and waited. Uh, and the thing wouldn't come down, so he left him up there. Figured, I hope he can make it through the service. And uh, so as soon as, as, soon as the, the service began, the old parrot started talking, calling out the same remarks again saying, same old crowd, same old crowd. He'd recognize the whole bunch of them. They were the same bunch he'd seen at the bar, you know. Well, you know, there's, there's a sense in which that, that may be possible. But you see, when people are really saved, they're not going to enjoy the pleasures of sin anymore the way they did. There's a change, a genuine change that takes place in the life. Now, with that, you move down to the next thing. Things that you should have. And again, our time's flying away, so we'll just touch on it. They should have a new hunger for the Word of God. And that's something they should expect. I wouldn't say to them, this is what you should have right now or you're not saved. Careful of that. Don't give them that impression. But tell them, these are some things that you can expect to be true in your life. And you ought to develop these areas of your life. First of all, desire for God's Word. First Peter 2.2 2, As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. God expects you to have a desire for His Word. A desire for holy living. First John chapter 2, verse 3 And hereby we, we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. We want to be walking in fellowship with Him. A third thing is a, a desire to tell others about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts 4.20, the disciples after the day of Pentecost said, we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. Tell him that even though he may not be able to articulate his faith clearly, that he should not be afraid to tell others when they, when they ask him what the difference is in his life. And then finally, there should be a love for other believers and a desire really to be with them. For in 1 John chapter 3, and I think we've got 12 here, it should be 14. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, it talks about the life that we have. Can't quote that one. Um, 3.14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth 
in death, in temporal death. You're out of fellowship with Christ if you don't have a love for other people. All right? Now, that gives you just a little idea of some of the things that you can cover. My, don't you wish, don't you really wish that when you first became a Christian that somebody would have sat down with you and gone over this? Just think. Now, don't make the mistake, same mistake with someone else. In other words, don't let them flounder for the first six weeks of being a believer before they actually have the chance to bite their teeth into something of this dimension. They're going to grow as a result, and you're going to be so pleased to see that result. Now, I've given you a little, given a little assignment that you would want to give to them. Just let me go over it quickly in closing. Pick some key verses for them to memorize. You might want to consider beginning right here with Navigator's B-Rations. That's a great way for people to begin to learn Scripture. You can pick them up at any bookstore. Just go and ask for Navigator's B-Rations, and they'll, they'll give you some. Probably cost you, I don't know what they cost now. They used to be a nickel, but I imagine now they're 50 cents. But in any event, a little packet of memory cards. And the nice thing about the NAVS cards are that they have topics. It's the topical memory system, so therefore they have topics. Pick out of the B-Rations a couple of verses that have to do with assurance of salvation and get him started learning a couple of verses that week. Then secondly, assign some reading, as I mentioned earlier, from Gospel of John, 1 John. I'd suggest you get him reading both of those, one in the morning, one in the evening. Ask him to commit himself to five minutes a day. Five minutes in the morning, I should say, and five minutes in the evening. Get that commitment out of him. And get him started reading and underlining promises. In fact, it's a good idea to show him why John was written and why 1 John was written. John was written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of, the, uh, Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. First John was written, in addition to other things that are given throughout the text, it was written that you might know that you have eternal life and that you might continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And then you should have in your arsenal, it really wouldn't be too much to ask, to ask you to just go out and purchase these on your own and have them available, and just pick out one that you want to use for this person. Some of these books are only, you know, 50 cents or 75 cents, in some cases a couple of dollars, but it would be well worth your time investing in these books for yourself, first of all, and then pick which one you want to use with this particular individual. Whatever Christian Ought to Know by, by William W. Orr is a great one. How to Begin the Christian Life by George Sweeting, a new book by Moody Press, terrific book. Whatever Christian Should Know About Growing, that's a little more money, but it's a book that is really dynamite. Uh, Leroy Ames uh, wrote that. Scripture Press or Victor Books is where you can get that. And Life After Birth by Bill McKee is especially good, especially for young people. If the person is young or college age, that's a particularly good book. And then I've also suggested you might consider as another option getting them started in the 10 basic steps towards spiritual maturity that Campus Crusade has. That's something that would be very, very help, helpful if they are willing to devote that extra time to it. But um, you can pick those up at the bookstore for about a dollar, dollar and a half a piece, a little paperback, and uh, it really would be a help to them. Now, that's your first, that's your first session. And uh, absorb that. Write your notes on the back of our notes. Get yourself all schooled for the thing. And I'd say, you know, even go to a restaurant, sit down with this guy, grab a napkin and start diagramming this little thing and, uh, and, and begin to show him some of the things that are facets in the Christian life. Now, this is the first of ten sessions that we'll spend covering these very basic things, and you'll have your arsenal full by the time we get done 
Pick from it what you can use. Don't try to give him the whole loaf if you can't handle it. But give him what you can use to bring this person, first of all, to a real assurance of salvation. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this good time that we've shared tonight. It's just good, again, to review for our own lives the joy, the reality of knowing that we are born again, knowing that we're in the family of God. We pray, Lord, that you'll just help us so much in our life and experience not to flounder between doubt and unbelief and real victory in our Christian life, but rather, Lord, help us to have faith in that which you've promised and to rest our case in what you've accomplished for us. We'll just praise you for what you're going to do in our lives and give us somebody even this week that we can begin to nurture to real maturity in Jesus Christ. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.